You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, folks, I'm in Canada right now in the middle of a conference, and I will be in Canada all throughout the following week. And so, uh, pray for me. We're going to be enjoying some time in Ottawa and in Toronto next week. If you're hearing this and you're in Ottawa or Toronto and I'm not done conferencing there yet, go to bridemovement.com and check out our homepage where at the bottom I have the contact information and uh, location information and so forth. I am this week going to be introducing you to a new voice, somebody you have not heard before, and you are going to be fascinated. But before we get there, I want to say a special thank you to all of our financial supporters because you are continuing to move this boat along the stream. And uh, it's just really excited to see the kind of things that are on our horizon should this platform continue to expand the way that it is. Uh, you'll notice that we're doing more and more engagement on social media, Instagram, and other outlets. Uh, we are really trying to expand our social media presence. Why? Because that is the net that we have as a primarily internet-based ministry. We're reaching people all over the world. And so we are just uh, using the tools that we have available to get folks uh, believing in the power of Jesus Christ, equipped, trained, and educated. I want to let you know that if you are looking to get educated, get on Bride Ministries Institute. We are transforming uh, into courses all of the past discipleship tracks that we've created plus new stuff stuff that's never been taught before our inner healing fundamentals course is something that i have never taught publicly as a as a weekend or anything the only way way you can get that information is to go to bride ministries institute and take the course and there'll be other courses like that in the future uh we decided to postpone the recording this month frankly because I was just tired <laughs> and um, my my wife who has really been uh, helping me and pushing me along to get all of these courses up decided to give me a, a, a free pass <laughs> so um, we, we postponed it till next month but we will be uh, putting out a course on the end times in the kingdom uh, following that we plan to release a course on the ministry to the human spirit and a course on realms realm thinking how to engage with realms build realms see scripture through overlaying interfacing realms and also to engage this world around you in a different way uh, what i have found is that realm thinking is like what takes christianity from pre-calculus to quantum physics it's it's just a, a a huge leap forward in understanding that allows for a much more highly complex things to be explained and problems to be resolved so so much coming on that front uh we do have a book called prayers to shake heaven and earth thank you to all of you that gave a review on amazon we are 
just seeing that book continue to sell and sell well, which tells me that a lot of people are getting breakthroughs and telling their friends about it. If you haven't gotten your hands on that work, I want to encourage you to do so. And don't just buy one, buy one for your friend. Uh, those are available at our website, bridemovement.com. Other than that, I have a men's course that is starting in a week and a half, and I'm going to be co-teaching it with our other leader at Bride Ministries, Todd, and it is going to be for men only. Women, I know you love to take my classes, and I love it that you do. As a matter of fact, because of you, we have really amazing classes because you are the ones signing up, but we need to empower the men. And so... I want to say thank you to all the wives that signed your husbands up because we saw our signups uh, practically quadruple over the past week ever since I appealed to all of you lovely wives out there. You know, we, we had like no one signing up and then I appealed to the wives. I said, wives, help us. And suddenly all these men showed up in our register. So thank you, wives. Thank you, women that love your mighty men. We are going to be uh, doing eight weeks on fundamentals for the mighty man and i'll tell you what if you thought you were mighty before this course get ready because what's coming after this course is going to shake the world <laughs> anyway with that said we're going to get to the program don't go anywhere you're listening to discovering the truth with dan Duvall. Well, folks, we are back for another episode of Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, and I am very excited to be introducing you to a guest that I have not featured on the podcast before. Her name is Dina, and she will be going by that, no last names, not right now, guys, sorry. Uh, Dina is a survivor of satanic ritual abuse and she has been part of our community at bride ministries for some time now she connected with us years ago she hung out with us at the fireplace church she's been part of some of our survivor support groups and recently she told me dan i am ready to talk i'm ready because the world needs to know the kind of stuff that's going on and know it's not just the u.s it's Canada too. And so I am greatly honored to have you, Dina, as my guest on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Hi. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. I laughed. I wrote in huge letters on my piece of paper. Guys, this is huge in Canada too. <laughs> Huge in Canada, too. You know, the, the, the thing about satanic ritual abuse, folks, is that this is not an isolated issue. It, it's not isolated to the U.S. It's not isolated to the U.K. It is a global issue. Now, as we get into your story, Dina, I want to give you an opportunity to give us a little bit about who you are. Uh, so before we get into the meat of your story, before we get into all of the different things that are, are, are quite frankly going to leave several of our listeners' jaws on the floor, and I'll just say that as a little caveat, um, what's a little bit about your current life? 
Oh, goodness. All right. Um, simple things. I am 33. And a lot of the discovery of this stuff started when I was 28. I am a wife of 12 years. I'm a mom of a beautiful eight-year-old miracle of a daughter. I live way up here in Winnipeg, Canada. And yes, it does get down to minus 40 and minus 50. Oh, um, <laughs> and I've got a younger, one younger brother, and I live and function every day with DID. And I am not the core. I am just the main presenter. I am the one that's married and a mom. Um, that is a whole story by itself. <laughs> well, thank you for um, thank you for that. And and uh, before we go any further, can you tell me and my audience why you are now ready to talk and to share about the things that you have seen and experienced? I will do my best. Um, I have been really quiet about most of my stuff for all of this journey. Um, I am constantly when you've talked about gang stalking I get it so um, I've been quiet but I've started to have a lot more peace about sharing recently and that that's all him um, my main I guess my desire to share is to offer hope to others that um, they can get through this because uh, I've gotten through this I've come this far and I know for me a lot of my hope on this journey has come from a lot of people that you've interviewed and hearing all of their stories and hearing them say, I'm still here, I'm still okay, um, I'm still functioning, it's rough, but but I'm making it. And that made a huge difference of hope in my life. And I want to be able to offer that to others too. And I guess my second reason for really feeling like it's time is... I have a huge heart for the church, and I I guess the prophet in me is getting tired of the blank stares when you mention spiritual warfare. I want to be a part of teaching in a church and being a part of waking the church up and letting them know that there are people like myself that need help, they need equipping, they need the tools to learn how to fight, and that we're, we're meant for more than just sitting in a pew. I mean, and that sounds like something I would say. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Uh, you, you, I've never been to Winnipeg, Canada. Um, in your area, have you encountered a great deal of ignorance in the areas of deliverance, spiritual warfare, and the need for inner healing? Huge. Um, several reactions usually happen. You either mm-hmm. get a glazed overlook. Hmm. Or you get the outright hostility that that's not for now. We shouldn't be doing that. Right. Or you get the, well, this scares me too much, so I'm going to let you handle that, and I'm going to go back over here. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess some things are uh, certainly trends. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about growing up and how you found salvation in Jesus Christ Uh, because he has been as I understand it the centerpiece of your healing journey 
And, you know, for those that are listening to this, maybe that have never chosen Jesus, but they, they, they simply know they need to take a healing journey and they know they've seen things that they're looking for answers for. Can you tell us your testimony? Ooh, I will try. Um, honestly, I am of the belief that true healing just can't happen without Yeshua. Because I think, like, for me, I've tried it all. I've tried the counseling. I've tried the, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried it all, and you just get, you go in circles. But when Yeshua steps in and says, I know how to solve this puzzle, will you let me? Mm-hmm. If you let him, it works. <laughs> he knows the way through. So I can testify to that. Um, I have honestly very little memories of growing up. Mm-hmm. I have little snippets of memories here and there, and I've always had little snippets of memories, and I've kind of always brushed that off as, doesn't everybody, like, do most people actually remember their childhood? Isn't it normal to not remember things? And then my daughter will chime in of, Mom, do you remember when I was two and this and this happened? And I look at her and go, how do you remember that stuff? <laughs> So um, I have snippets of things that I do remember. I remember my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, my mom's dad, and I remember him and my uncle were very military. Um, my grandfather was a 33rd degree Freemason. He had all of his stuff all over his house. Um, he was a Shriner. I remember going to the Shriner Circus every year and riding elephants and you know all the stuff that seems like a lot of fun. Um, I remember hearing the stories, um, small stories, when my grandpa would get drunk, and he would finally start to share small little things about being a POW in World War II in Germany. And I remember always being dragged with my uncle and my grandfather to the Salvation Army Church, mm-hmm. which is a big part of their beliefs. Um, I remember things like constantly protecting my little brother who is six years younger than I am from crazy amounts of abuse. My mom has been through a lot of relationships and so we bounced around from home to home a lot and none of them were really good guys. I think I can count two that were that were good. Um, wow. I remember spending a lot of time at my grandparents' house. My mom was not really capable of handling us she would have a breakdown honestly every couple months and she would just drop me off or she would drop my brother off um we have different fathers and so his father bounced in and out of the picture as well and so my brother would maybe go stay with his dad or maybe come with and my mom would go stay at an institution or she would just outright disappear i remember being a my mom would just call me a nuisance, and she just couldn't handle it. She couldn't handle it if I actually spoke up about anything. And when I did, she would just say, nope, I can't handle it, and she would take me again to my grandparents. So I bounced around a lot. I remember being four when my birth father kidnapped me for a year and a half and took me to Calgary. And I lived with him and his wife. And then one day he just dropped me off at my grandma's and he never looked back. I never really heard from him much. A birthday present here or there, um, Garth Brooks tapes and things like that. And that was, that was it. Um, I have recently, after getting memories back, actually learned 
what the damage that was done in that year and a half. I remember his wife holding me up to a mirror when I was five and telling me I was ugly when I cried and I should stop. And I remember making a vow at age five to just never cry again. And I honestly, I don't think I even cried until I was 28. It was just turned off completely. Wow. Um, I remember making, yeah, so as I remember testifying in court. I was eight years old. I was nine. I was nine years old. And one of my mom's husbands, who had crazy rage, he literally ran after us with a knife and we slammed the door to the bedroom and hid under the bed and I remember the knife actually going through a wooden door that's the amount of strength that was there um I remember my grandpa V I'll just use initials to kind of protect names Mm -hmm. and he was my grandmother's third husband and my papa my mom's dad's best friend and I remember just his kindness he was the one guy in my life growing up that he didn't go anywhere he he was kind I remember when I got married he's the one I wanted to walk me down the aisle he wasn't able to he passed away when I was in college but he Mm -hmm. he was the one guy um he had a nickname for me he taught me how to garden he would take me hunting um I later like recently have learned that he was Russian a Canadian sniper, and he's where a lot of my Russian parts learned to speak and were programmed, and most of his family were military. Gosh. And I learned that just a couple months ago, so... I remember basically raising myself. Um, I would make lunches for my little brother, and myself, I would walk him to school, and then I would walk to my school. And I remember... Honestly, it sounds crazy. I remember missing a lot of school. I remember never, we would get tests and I would write the test. And I would just leave blanks everywhere because I didn't remember learning it. And I was always told from little, like really little, like you're incredibly smart. You're smarter than you should be. I was reading chapter books at age two. I would always seem to be behind in school. And teachers would ask questions, where were you? And I always just gave the typical response, you know, family vacation or (laughs) just gone. And I never had those responses. Wow. I actually have some fun memories, believe it or not. Um, Okay. I know my mom actually really, she did try. I now, like, now knowing what I know, I know that my mom is DID as well, and mm-hmm. I understand the switches that would happen. I understand the anger that would happen and all of that, and it's allowed me to have forgiveness and to actually let go of things that I couldn't understand before. But I remember my mom, we loved camping, and we would pack up and we would go camping for weekends, and Kootenai Lake was like my favorite place. It was beautiful. It Again, now knowing what I know about that place, I don't find it as beautiful anymore, but I loved the lake. I loved fishing. I remember running into the back end of a black bear with my bike, and I, it ran screaming up the trail, and I sort of felt like I was going to die of a heart attack. We oh were both terrified. My. Like a real black bear. <laughs> like a real black bear. This like is I real around Canada. The corner and my oh bike my. hit him, and I flew off my Good. bike, and he ran down the trail, and you just kind of sit there stunned going, oh, crap, he's going to come back. <laughs> Wow. 
Okay. Yeah, oh, I'm um, sorry. I'm just, that took me by surprise. I'm like, you just ran into a bear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have those. Um, I remember having a pet deer. Uh-huh. I... I summer for me, you know, as a kid was strawberry picking and I learned my grandpa taught me and so I was picking a lot younger than most people my age and you make a lot of money doing it during the summer actually. And I was strawberry picking one day and this deer came and laid down in front of me and it shocked me. And I tried moving and I was mad at it because it was eating my fruit, it was eating my money. And so I got up and I I went home and all of a sudden, my cousins run up on the porch. There's a deer on the front porch, so it had followed me home. <laughs> and we ended up keeping it in the chicken coop for, like, the whole entire summer. And it became, like, my best friend. And we actually had to take it to the animal rescue because as it got older, the hormones kicked in and it got aggressive. Oh. But he was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, those are some of the good memories I guess I have. I do have some. They're just they feel so far and few between. So for you, when you, you know, got a little older and began to look back and you would think, Okay, what was my childhood? Were, were, what you just walked us through, the pieces that you typically had access to. You didn't have to do work to get these, or did you have to also even do some healing work to get the memories you just told us? Those ones I've always had. Okay, okay. Um, how I would get to the campground, I never remembered. How how we would get places, I just didn't have. I remember being there, but I just I don't remember a lot of travel time. <laughs> and how often would you stop and consider, you know, I wonder why I don't have... A little bit more or were, was it just for you like you explained in the beginning well this is just everybody nobody knows what's going on it was normal it felt normal to me like you sit there and you question well doesn't everybody have inner dialogue doesn't everybody like it, it it's normal it felt normal I remember um, I think I was grade eight or nine um, my friends would start to tell stories of you know, family history or things that they had done when they were little. And I just, I would sit there quietly and, you know, don't you have any? Or, you know, when you go to youth group and they ask those silly questions of name this person or your family or do this, I didn't have them and I would always remain quiet and I didn't know what to do with that. That's when I started to really question it. Makes sense. And, uh, you know, folks, I mean, what, what Dina is explaining is very very typical of of I mean all of the different survivors I've sat down with worked with personally there's a certain normalcy around the abnormality there that that when we grow up from young children into adulthood under certain circumstances most people don't stop to question whether or not what they're navigating is normal it just is assumed uh, and, and people assume very odd things at times and the more mm-hmm. I speak with survivors the more I'm like and you never question that and 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 this is where I think you know the the body of Christ needs to also take some time to assess 
our approach to things. We think sometimes that everybody has the same paradigm for engaging the world that we do if we come from stability. Not true. And um, anyway, let's get to the story of your encounter with Jesus. Just to add one more thing to what you were saying, I, it's really true. Um, having a daughter of my own and seeing how easily she just accepts something that she's told, mm-hmm. and it becomes truth to her. And when she comes home, she said, Mom, did you know that this and this and this? And you sit down and you go, baby girl, that's not true. Um, here is the truth. And she goes, oh, and then that becomes her truth. And it's that simplistic acceptance that this is just the way it is. <laughs> Um, okay, so <laughs> moving forward. Yeah, moving forward. I um, A lot of those memories become a lot clearer for me when I became a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I remember we went to a family reunion. As crazy as that sounds, um, it was in Alberta. I grew up in British Columbia, and we went in Alberta uh, during summer vacation out to Drumheller and my mom met a guy out there and that guy was actually her cousin which my grandfather married my grandmother it wasn't blood and it was his family reunion so we went with them so my mom met him and they quote unquote fell in love with the after the week and a half that we spent there and it feels like that Alberta redneck story of <laughs> married your cousin but it's true um in a matter of a week after coming home, my mom didn't come home with us, and then she called and said, so I've decided that we're moving to Alberta. And when you are 15 years old, this is, your world ends when you hear that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know, you're going into grade 10, and it's, it's a hard year for school, and it was just, nope, you're switching provinces. And so we up and moved in a matter of three weeks, actually. And this was her third marriage and fifth relationship. When we moved out there, I remember getting dragged to church. His family were, they were Christians, and that was the first real introduction into anything Christian in my life. I remember one friend, and she would drag me to youth group, and I hated it. I hated it with a passion, and never listened, and then I met my mom's new husband's family and it was a requirement to go to church and so I went and then his daughter who became you know my stepsister she started dragging me to youth group and then she started dragging me to kids club and I met a really neat family there and I started to feel like hey maybe I could settle down here and then as as I became comfortable there, all of a sudden you, when it's a paradigm switch, when everything that you've known is normal hits you in the face and it goes, actually that's not normal and people start to tell their stories and everything started to get really, really messy and I questioned everything of my life and all of a sudden after a year of marriage, my my mom hit me square in the face again and said, 
um, actually were going to move back to BC after a year. It wasn't working. And talk about instability. And it hit, it hit the wall. It came to a head when the man that she was married to caught her cheating on him with another man. And I later found out exactly what happened there and the fact that he, he was a handler and he was making sure that she was back on the right track. She was headed back to my grandmother, who has been her handler her whole life and my handler for a good portion of the life, like my life. And she needed to go back. She shouldn't have moved. And so in that moment when he confronted her about it, she just, she spiraled out of control and then he spiraled out of control and all of a sudden she was in one room threatening to commit suicide and he was in the other room threatening to commit suicide and I'm stuck going I don't know how to handle this stuff Hmm. and I lost it and I left and I ran out of the house and they lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere and when I say the middle of nowhere I mean a small little town called a hamlet that had 50 people in it, and we lived about 15 kilometers outside of that, oh, in the middle of nowhere. So I had nowhere to really run. And I ran out into the middle of a field. It was the neighbor's field, and I just, I laid down, and I just, you know, you just start screaming. Hmm. And I made a plan at that moment, and I ran back, and I turned on the vehicle, and I closed all the garage up, and they were dealing with their own stuff inside, and I ran back out into the field, and I knelt down, and I was just breathing, and I was like, that's it. I'm done, too. I am just done. And all of a sudden, this is where, you know, to anybody listening, it gets weird, because there's time travel here. <laughs> oh, man. But somebody appeared to me and sat with me and told, like, convinced me not to and it it was love like I felt love and I understood it and and they convinced me just don't do it and so I didn't and there is time travel in that because actual time travel because as I've been working through healing Mm -hmm. it actually turns out that that happened because the person that's been walking through healing with me was taken back to that time and convinced me not to. So he was the one that sat down. So <laughs> Oh, now that's fascinating. Time travel's real. <laughs> well, and and so <laughs> you know, I and and I, I I like to think, you know, that our prayers are not bound by time or space because God is not bound by time or space and beyond that um our operations in Christ are not bound by time or space. This is a this is a level of operation that the church is going to step into more and more in the future. Um, what you're talking about, though, I know that that is it's just absolutely possible. That's incredible. Wow, it's pretty amazing. And so I didn't. I'm alive, and I. I ran out of the field and I ran next door. Again, it was two farms connected and it was his parents lived in the next farm. And so I ran over to their place and I told them what was going on. And the police were called and I called, I used their phone and I called the family that 
I had been growing close with that actually ran the youth group and ran the kids club that um, his daughter had been dragging me to. <laughs> and they came and they picked me up. And I spent a couple days there. Mm-hmm. And after all the dust had settled and all of a sudden I heard from my mom again. And I spent those couple days just sick to my stomach, not knowing what would happen, not knowing if anyone was even alive, not knowing anything. And I cried a lot on M. She really was there for me. And then they they took me back home. And my mom was like, well, apparently she's alive. And she's moving back to BC. And it was we're not even leaving, you know, with enough time to pack. It was just, we're leaving right away. And in a couple of days, she pretty much packed everything that she really wanted and left. And that for me, those couple of days of packing was my absolute breaking point with everything. It was, a uh, I didn't know what to do. I felt stuck. I wasn't moving back into the stuff that I had come from and I didn't know what to do where I was. And, and I called um, S and I said, I, I need advice. What do I do? And they prayed about it and they said, hey, do you want to come live with us at least to finish off your grade 10 year? And I said, okay. And quick decision happened and I moved out and my, my mom moved back to BC and I stayed in Alberta and I actually was able to finish my grade 10 year with them. But I wasn't able to stay there after that because Again, small town Alberta is really rural, and not not all schools go to all grades. So I I, mo- I had met another family um, during my stay with S and M, and they the other family knew at least some of the surface level craziness that I'd been going through, and they said, "Well, hey, we've had teenagers live with us in the past. We've had exchange students." Um, we've got an empty room right now. Do you want a place to come and live? And their school system in that town was a central school system, and so it it worked. So I moved with them, and that was, it was okay. I had moved for the summer, and we actually went for a trip out to BC as a quote-unquote family. And, <clears throat> sorry, I have to take Um, sorry, trying to think now. Help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you, you, you're talking to us about this couple. You just moved to BC, British Columbia. Yes. Yeah. And, there we go. Thank you. And you're about to start your 11th grade year with this new family. Yeah. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I had wanted to mention was the family that I'd moved in with, um, S&M, they started working deliverance with me. Mm-hmm. And they started, they so noticed me, a lot of trends. Let me just back up a, a second here. Yeah. Um, so by this point, you had already come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? or Not you, yet, no. So, so they were trying to work inner healing and deliverance, and you weren't yes. even fully convinced of who Jesus was. Nope. Okay, nope. I just wanted to get that straight. Please continue. Yeah, they they tried because there was very obvious demonic 
things coming out in me um, whenever I would go to youth group, I would pass out, or whenever I would join in on anything, things would actually come up and swear. Or <laughs> So there was very obvious demonic activity around me. And when they would try, things would always get worse. And they would leave. And then the moment that I would leave the church, they would just come right back. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, I had moved in. Oh, shoot. No, my brain is already jumping way ahead. So, <laughs> so they yeah. had begun okay. trying to help you, but now you're moving with Yeah, they'd begun trying to help with everything. And it was a youth group one night where they had tried everything and the demonic in me was so strong and Sean just decided to skip his message and give a message on love and he just felt such a press to give a message on love and all of a sudden I gained consciousness again and I heard it and he approached me and he he said hey would you just give give Yahweh a chance just ask him what have you got to lose and I honest to goodness I had nothing to lose I had no concept of what love was um, it was foreign love was actually a joke I was wrapped up in so much anger and rage and hatred and you know S&M, they were the first ones to ever really give me any glimpse of what a family looked like or what love looked like. And so I thought, you know what, if he's going to ask, sure. And so I did, and I remember just like sitting on the floor and saying, you know what, fine. If you are supposedly love, if you are supposedly real, and if, you know, if you've got something for me, and I was snarky, and I expected <laughs> nothing to happen. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I was just, I collapsed, and I was shown a vision. And I was taken to this huge throne room, and it was incredibly bright, and there were these huge um, marble pillars everywhere. And the floor was glass, and underneath I could see clouds and stars mixed with each other like it was day and night at the same time. It was so strange. And I looked up and the brightness that was coming from one of these chairs. And there was chairs all the way around it, but there was one that was huge, like a throne. And I, I looked that way and I couldn't make out any features, but I just wanted to be there. And I walked over there and, and all of a sudden I was just picked up and I was held in these arms, and I was held to his chest. And just the feeling of safety and the feeling of overwhelming love. I didn't even know what that word was, but it, it wrapped me up. In, there's just not even human words to describe how I felt safe. <laughs> and, and I just sat there, and I listened to his heartbeat, and... And I knew that that's just where I wanted to be forever, and I didn't want to leave. And and he said, you have to go back. And I cried, and I wailed, and I said, no, don't make me go back. Don't make me go back. And he said, it's not your time, but you needed to know me and who I really am. Mm -hmm. And and he just, again, like the words, just 
those are crystal clear. And it was like, there will be counterfeits, but you need to know who I am. And again, the I am, right? Mm -hmm. And and then all of a sudden I was back in the living room. (laughs) And I was back in reality. And I didn't really have that, you know, gospel, typical gospel, I guess, reality of I choose to give my life to Jesus Christ. I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I I just remember I want to follow him. This, I, I don't want to leave that. His son, this is what I want. And Sean was able to put more words into what had happened and describe things about Yeshua. And I just kept thinking that I want to follow him. That's what I want. So that was the, I guess, the gave my life to Yeshua moment. That's powerful. And you were 16. I was 16, yeah. And this was before or after you moved to British Columbia? I grew up in British Columbia. It was in Alberta. I didn't move back to BC. I just moved in with another family in Alberta. Okay, got it. My mom moved back to BC. Your mom moved back. You stayed. You moved in with another family. And then you found Yeshua when you were Mm -hmm. 16 with this radical encounter of the throne room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one of those you will never, ever forget that moment. That is so powerful. It was, and it was, I would love to sit and say that it changed my life, Mm -hmm. but it didn't. Mm. It, It seeded something deep inside of me that would later change my life in an incredible way, but it it didn't instantly change. I didn't have that. My life is all better now. I'm freed from everything reality. Well, welcome to the club. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, how did things go from there? I mean, because you as a teenager... I, I imagine, you know, you're carrying all of this rage and anger and, um, you know, emotion. You don't even know fully why you have it. Uh, you're yeah. now going through abandonment because, I, I, I mean, your mom dragged you through five relationships and then just jumps back over and and, 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 and so now you are having to figure things out for yourself you move in with this well-meaning family i mean okay was it was it a happy ending goodness no um (laughs) i when i moved in with them i filed for what is called an independent status in canada which essentially means that i'm considered an adult at age 16 and i can make my own decisions i don't need parental or guardian permission uh, it was a long process, but it was, for me, really worth it. It meant that I could get a job, I could make decisions, I could go to the doctor, and I didn't need to have anyone. And honestly, I didn't have anyone. Mm-hmm. I had a guardian, but it was never officially made, and my mother wasn't speaking to me, so I, I needed some form of ability to even get through school. And so I actually worked through high school, and I bought my own school books, and I made my own decisions. And... um. I know R&E, they really did try their best with me. Um, They were a very, very, very kind family, and they really did show me a lot of love, and they took me on, honestly not knowing what they were getting themselves into, (laughs) and I can't fault them for that. Um, I remember one night while 
I was living with them and I went to a party with friends and I came home at 4 a.m. And I remember being at the party. And again, yes, I had accepted Yeshua, but I, I was still me and I still wanted to party. I still wanted to drink. I was almost living a double life. I was the nice Christian girl because they needed me to be, but my friends weren't believers. And I, I, I just lived things really differently. And I remember being at a party and all of a sudden these four guys showed up and that is actually the last thing that I remember after they showed up. I remember waking up on the bathroom floor, throwing up and completely hung over. Um, had come to the party and seen me leave with the guys and go to a hotel room in town. And then he saw me arrive home on my bike at 4 a.m. And I was grounded for a very long time. And I actually received all of that information secondhand. They told me what had happened. And I couldn't, I couldn't deny it. I couldn't prove it. I didn't remember it. And I've, at 16, and being into alcohol, I, I just chalked it up to I had too much to drink. And again, I, after walking through the healing stuff now, I can honestly remember what happened. And it was not good. But back then, I didn't know. It was just, once again, I had missing time, which was the normal. Mm. Um, I remember being on their kitchen floor one night, and I was so suicidal. I was just done. And I I had a constant cyclical battle with suicide and depression and self-injury. And, and I could never figure out where it was coming from. And no matter who tried to talk to me or help me, it just it didn't feel like there was ever a way out of it or a solution. And I remember being sarcastic because people would tell me that, well, you just don't have enough faith or you just don't, <laughs> you don't believe the Yeshua that you claim to know. And I was just sarcastic and it was like, you know what, I had that thing, but I'd almost forgotten that encounter. And at that moment on the floor, I had taken a huge knife that, honestly, trigger warning, was very, very sharp. Mm-hmm. And and I was going to take my life right there on the floor. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And the knife would not do anything. And I was so angry and confused, and I threw the knife, and I even remember it sticking into the cabinet to try explaining that to people. And <laughs> they were really mad. I just said I dropped the knife. But... <laughs> It turns out, again, going back and looking at those memories with Yeshua, it was a Amalek, an angel, that had stuck his arm in between the knife and my arm. And he took that. And, again, my life was saved. And I, it took a couple days. It's one of those you learn to just go to bed and wake up and put on that happy face and pretend like everything is okay. And I learned to just do that. And I woke up and I just tried to pretend. And then I eventually reached out to, um, it was a public health nurse. She was a counselor. And I reached out to her. And she was my adopted aunt's friend. And she was like, hey, can I just talk? And so I sat down with her and I told her what was going on. And I don't even know why I did. I just did. And she said, well, I actually am legally bound to take you to the doctors right now. And if you're suicidal, I have to take you. And I was so furious with her. I didn't want to go, but I did. 
And I went to the doctor, and Dr. H was great. And he listened, and he said, okay, well, I'm going to put you on suicide watch. I'm going to prescribe you antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. And you're going to be okay. And so I came home, and um, R&E were at the table, and I didn't tell them where I had gone after school. And so, again, they gave me the look of, now what? And so I sat down, and I just very bluntly told them where I was and that I'd gone to the doctors. And it turns out that that was their break point with me. And they just said, you know, we just, you're too much for us. We can't handle this. And again, it's that once again, I'm too much for everybody. No one can handle me. The, the abandonment just, it hits. And so you just, okay. And I had later learned that um, E had had a friend that she had walked into that had committed suicide. And she walked in and found her. And that trauma was so huge for her. Mm. And she had never dealt with that. And so all of the stuff with me was dragging that up with her. But I didn't find that out until... Good grief, I was 25, 26. <laughs> so I want to have you take a few moments and talk a little bit more about the psychology behind cutting. And, and I don't mean to give me a psychologist's uh, thesis on this subject. I, I want to hear Dina's mental process on this subject. I mean, what would engage in your head and physical body that would drive you to the point that you'd say, I just want to open my flesh with a sharp object. How did that transact? In my conscious memory, mm -hmm. the first time I remember making the choice to do it, I, it was an accident. Like it just, it happened and the pain kind of shocked me. Mm -hmm. And it was almost that shocked feeling that that actually almost became the, the addiction. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know how to word that. It was like the shock of, ow. And it just became, I don't know what it is about me and about my blood, but the enemy has wanted my blood throughout this whole battle. And I used to just watch it drip and think, you know, I was releasing something. Something was leaving me. And and the pain, I wanted pain. And no no human should want pain. And I wanted the pain, and I wanted to see the blood, and I wanted to... This, I get, There was times where it was that thrill of how deep can you go. It just became that. And, and the high that came with it was the addiction, because every time you went deeper, there was a high with it. And it would just, I guess, temporarily make me feel separated from everything that I was going through. It would drown it all out. And put something into focus that I couldn't do at any other point in my life. Hmm. Um, and that high, would that for you become like an emotional release? Yeah. It was, a, I, again, I had chosen at five to not cry. Hmm. I didn't have a healthy way in any way to express anything. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't seeking people like it wasn't how do you word that um 
I didn't tell anybody. No one really knew that I was doing it until I had finally reached out at one point with the counselor and she asked me if I had ever done it and that's when I had shown her. But I didn't tell people that that's what I was doing. It, yeah, it wasn't uh, attention-seeking, that's the word. I wasn't doing it for attention. I was doing it just, yeah, to release things. And this is something that I've, one, I appreciate you talking so candidly about because for me, right, I could never understand when I heard about people like earlier on, you know, before I got into this work, you know, is people wanting to cut themselves. And I, I I mean, I actually had a friend who was into uh, the underground rap scene and he literally broke a bottle on stage and started shredding his arms and other parts of his body to just let blood out of his body during a performance. It it was, uh, and I wasn't wow. there personally. I was just told about it. And I'm like, oh, he must have been tripping off of something. Because I, I just couldn't imagine that anyone that was not, I mean, totally blown out of their mind on some kind of drug or other substance that made him do something totally uncharacteristic would have any desire to inflict pain i just couldn't understand that it's like pain is uncomfortable pain is something you avoid at all costs if possible so on and so forth and um you know when when i began working with survivors i found more and more that uh desire for self-harm was part of the symptom set it it's it's more the norm than the uh, you know the the variation or the whatever. So so uh, understanding why a person is driven to this kind of behavior became very important for me. And I think that with you talking so candidly about it, people are going to be able to identify with you, Idina, and um, feel like they are understood so thank you for that yeah not a problem it was i have such a high pain tolerance too that it what would have made a normal person jump just didn't with me i didn't even feel it so Mm, mm, mm. and did you have other friends that were going through this with you that you know they, they would confess to you like yeah i you know, or or was were you kind of isolated in this? I had one other friend, and she knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I remember her telling me one day she was a hardcore witch, and she would do it for. And she was, yeah, a, a dark, very dark person. And she would tell me that she would do it to summon spirits, and that always struck me like it used to scare the heck out of me but it was always I felt a draw to it and I was like oh I could never I could never and it was like actually I could and it really resonated with me and I would she was the only one that I ever shared that with wow and that makes well clearly a lot as a matter of fact isn't that what the prophets of Baal did when Elijah was prophesying and uh, he was challenging them to light the fire and they were crying out to Baal, cutting themselves, uh, clearly trying to summon him 
with bloodletting. So that's ancient. Fascinating. Um, You know, Dina, you left off, right? Okay, they could not tolerate what you were manifesting. They just couldn't handle it. What did you do? Yeah. They asked me to find a new, like to move home with my mom is what they had said. And I, again, that was not an option for me. And I had been going to youth group via, you are required to do this as a good Christian. So I had been going and the youth leaders, um, they had taken an interest in in my life and they would pull me aside and ask me how I was doing. And they just noticed that I was always on the outskirts and didn't hang out with anybody and I didn't really want to be there. And they, one day I was like, you know what? I just gave them a call and I let them know that I didn't know what to do. And they said, well, would you like to come stay with us to finish off the grade 12 year? It was about December and there was about six months left. So I moved in with them to finish off my grade 12 year. And they were, again, a very sweet, very genuine couple. And they really did try and pour into my life. Um, they had they had a horse and that horse, it had just shown up in their life. And it, I, okay, growing up, my neighbors, like my grandmother's neighbors had horses and I would always find myself over in their field. And H would take me for a ride on this horse named Bucky O'Hare. And I always felt safe with horses, always. I can't remember a time where I've ever felt fear around them. And so that horse that um, RNG had, I, it had been horribly abused. They could get nowhere near it. It was just in the field and they were feeding it. And it, it was wild, like wild horse. And I would go after school every day and I would sit in the field and R was always worried about me. She'd be scared that I would get hurt and I just ignored it and that's where I wanted to be. And I would take my homework and I'd take my reading and I'd sit out in that field and that horse, we broke each other. <laughs> it, it would inch closer and closer every day to me and I would not move and it would get more curious. And that's the thing about horses is they are incredibly curious creatures. And it would get close and close. And then one day it stuck its like snout right in my neck. And I just reached my hand and touched its its nose. And it, again, freaked out and ran the other way. But after months and months and months of just doing that, I was able to get this horse into the round pen and just just hang out with it and I learned a lot about horses by just hanging out with this horse and it it grew to trust me and I was working with it and one day someone came up the driveway that it didn't know and the horse's name was Cobalt and he was just as black as could be but he just had this gentle soul in there but he he panicked and he bolted and in a fluke moment my finger snapped and impressive break and I I went to R and I was like so this happened and thankfully she was a nurse and she was able to deal with that in me and help me through that and I needed to have surgery and and I remember like after surgery I came to and I had an insane panic attack because I woke up in the hospital and I 
was screaming like, who am I? Where am I? And I was terrified. Hmm. And she just, she was so confused and she's like, this is your name. And just like, it must be the anesthetic and, and everything with that. And that's what it was chalked up to. But I, that still really stuck with me was just now again, it was a part that had woken up and woke up in a scary place and they were just losing it. And that was again, one of those things that really stands out about this is not normal. And so they, they really did try and love on me. And I, mm-hmm. <clears throat> again, I, I went through that same cyclical pattern of depression and suicide, and I just couldn't handle it anymore. And all the emotions that I couldn't figure out where they were coming from and random panic attacks, and it just was getting worse. And I ended up in their basement, once again, trying to take my life. And I, I had absently decided, okay, I've got enough pills, and I had taken them all. And it should have killed me. It really should have. And I remember waking up, and a voice in my head is the one that told me what had happened. And it just felt like a distant, floating voice. And it was my own thoughts. And it was, again, attached to a huge lack of memory of what had happened. And... And so again, I spoke up and after a couple of days, I put on that happy face and went about everything and, and I told them what happened. And I got that same look that I always get of, you're too much to handle. We can't deal with this. You need to find a new place to live. And, and again, I just absolutely broke and I ran out into the field and I found my horse and I just stayed out there with him and... I came back in, and they had talked and prayed, and they decided, okay, we'll keep you. Um, you need to, this can't happen again. We'll let you finish off and graduate. And it was only a couple months till graduation, and I think it was like a month and a half. And, mm. and I was like, okay, so I actually made it to graduation, and I graduated from high school, which felt like an insane accomplishment for me. And that after graduation, I, I said goodbye to them. And I moved back in with the very first family that I had moved out at 16 with and moved in with them. And I worked um, at a place during the summer so I could raise money. And I had applied to Bible college. And, and S started working with me again, trying to help with deliverance. And there would apparently be six people, like six huge guys trying to help me and sitting on top of me. And apparently I would still be lifted four feet off the ground with the things that were coming up. And I would have no memory of any of the deliverance, nothing. And I would wake up and S would tell me what had happened. And there was days where he would notice all the cuts on my arm, especially during the, during deliverance sessions. And he would call me out on it. And and he would tell me, you just don't want to quit. You don't actually want to follow Yeshua. You, you just want this. You don't want, you don't want to walk in the narrow way. And he was really blunt about it. And I've always appreciated us for that and his bluntness. And he would take away my blades. And I would always get more, but I would never remember how. And he'd ask me, did you buy them? What did you do? And I would just shrug. And he just chalked it up to, you know, I must have been lying. But I never remembered getting them again. 
I just always had a stash of them. <laughs> and just again, like I've always noticed that the demand for blood for me has been absolutely huge all throughout my life. Um, one little memory that's kind of sparking right now. I remember my mom was cleaning one of my wounds. Mm-hmm. Like I'd scraped myself up when I was younger. And I remember she, you get the mom spit where, you know, a mom licks their thumb and they go to clean something. Mm. And, and she had taken the, the blood and she'd licked it. And I remember thinking, what the heck? And that's disgusting. And she's kind of shrugged it off, but sorry, that just, sparked a little memory right there <laughs> um after I moved in and school was looming I actually went to Calgary and I went to Bible college and somewhere in my grade 12 year and somewhere at the beginning of Bible college my mother and my grandmother had begun talking to me again and they were all of a sudden in my life and I was getting phone calls from them And I don't ever remember the moment that that started. I don't remember how they were in my life again. They were just there. And they would call my roommates, and my roommates would pass on messages, and I remember ignoring them very purposefully. Mm -hmm. And it just, yeah, I just remember the, the fear when they started to enter my life again. And my first year of college, I met this guy. And he was, he was really unique. And our first conversation, he, he didn't even have, I don't think he has a surface level button, not really, mm-hmm. but it was Tim Hortons and we had sat down and he was like, so tell me about your life. And for some reason I felt a safety there and I just kind of poured out the surface level of my life. And we talked till three in the morning. And that was the first person I actually had ever really shared my testimony with or any details of my life. And he didn't run. And we actually became really, really good friends. And we realized, you know, by about December into the first year that we, there was more than that there. We actually liked each other. Mm. And there was something growing, but both of us, we were not in a place. Neither of us felt that we were ready to date, that we were ready to commit to a relationship. And so we decided after, you know, a long two in the morning talk in dorms that it was, we were better friends right now. And so that actually settled something and we prayed together and we gave it to Yeshua and we said, okay, let's, let's just keep going. And so we stayed as friends that whole entire first year. We were actually considering moving in together. There was like three guys, and three girls that were all going to share a house together because it was cheaper for rent. And that didn't end up happening. That is the grace of Yahweh. (laughs) (laughs) And so second year of college, um, there was a whole bunch of us that were supposed to make a huge dorm room Thanksgiving, and my choir director actually had bets out that we were all going to order KFC. Because... (laughs) you know, college students and cooking. So um, everybody bailed on us. And we actually ended up making the meal together, just the two of us. And it was ridiculous amounts of fun. And after the meal, we all, everybody showed up to eat it. And we all sat down to watch a movie. And 
again, dorm room sparseness of furniture, there was one chair and a mattress on the floor. So <laughs> I remember sticking my head just on the corner of the mattress, you know, just wanting a little bit of the comfort. And, and all of a sudden there was something that flipped inside of me. And I had that, oh, shoot, those feelings are back. And I ignored them. And then I went, he went home and I sat down on my computer at like one in the morning and all of a sudden I get this MSN messenger chat. And it was, hey, so we need to talk. And I was like, oh no. And he, he said, so I think that I am feeling like we did a year ago. And I was like, me too. And my roommate looks up and I threw up in the rubbish can beside my computer. And she looks at me and she's like, uh-oh. So we decided at that moment that we were going to take 10 days and we were going to pray. Because if either of us were ever going to date, we were going to date for the sake of getting married. We weren't going to do the date around thing. Mm-hmm. And so I... we ignored each other and avoided each other for 10 days and we prayed and we both came back with the same the same words from Yahweh that said I will bless you either way Hmm. and it was like oh okay (laughs) and so that became our journey together actually and so we actually only dated for four months before he proposed and six months later we were married and um, um so i'm sure that those four months and then six months were just bliss uh um butterflies and uh wonderful moments you're hilarious <laughs> <laughs> no they they really weren't i look back now and i'm like i still have my moments of why on earth did you choose to marry me even after all of all that he saw in me mm-hmm. um, during the during that dating period um, again guys and girls dorms were completely separate like apartments apart kind of thing and I would go over there and I would hang out just hang out with my friend or hang out with my fiance at that point and he had four other roommates and so we would hang out and then they would all go do their thing and something would happen and I would I would black out and I would wake up the next morning on the couch with a blanket on me and a pillow and I would be completely confused and my he would have to fill me in as to what happened and he would tell me that I was on the floor screaming for a knife like screaming and desperate and clawing at him and he would put all of his weight on top of me for hours and hours to stop me and then I would pass out eventually just exhaustion and then I would yeah wake up the next morning and that happened on and off actually quite a lot um once once it happened in the middle of a field and he literally grabbed a hold of me and just held me and I screamed that I was going to run away and again I had blacked out I had no memory of any of that stuff and thankfully I never once got kicked out of guy dorms even though I would be waking up 
at you know in the morning time having spent the night constantly in in their dorms and the yeah the RAs were really great and they just <laughs> they took it in stride and that was a huge blessing so, I remember in yeah no continue please yeah I remember in Calgary like during my times I would go for study times at my favorite place and it was absolutely gorgeous indoor garden and there was turtles and I remember finding such joy and peace there and I remember going and then I remember the security guard he he knew me because I was constantly there and he I come back and he's like why are you back we're closing and I was like what do you mean we're closing it's like two oh it's like 11 o'clock at night and I would I lost time constantly no idea I would wake up close to the armory all the time which is again just downtown and no no idea how I would get places and you kind of just you put it in that box in your brain of what the what hmm. but you've got nothing to sort it out with <laughs> and that just it was the story of my life <laughs> So, did he ever, like, question if you had multiple personalities? Or did he just think... I don't even think, think he'd ever heard that term. That that was just who you were? Somebody that f would have these episodes and then forget about them? That's just the way it is. Did you ever I ask that? I don't think I've ever asked him he when it was discovered that's what I had it was it made sense it checked off all the the list but it I don't think either of us even knew that that term existed or that it was something wow and again I was a psychology major I remember I don't I remember going through the areas of depression and like all of those things in my psych books not once did I ever run across multiple personality disorder mm, mm, mm. so either that somehow was blocked from my memory or just wasn't in there I should actually go back through that psych book and see <laughs> so you guys got married um, and so life continued on for it years did. Um, before we yeah yeah, we were married for two years, and we stayed in Alberta in a small town, and we moved for a couple houses there, and, you know, the weird still always continued. I still remember losing time a lot, and going out and coming back and being asked, you know, where were you, and, oh, I was just out. That was constantly my, my answer, and not once have I ever stopped, even in all of our 12 years of marriage now, like. I've always struggled with suicide and depression and self-injury and anxiety and all these things that we could never find a solution for, no matter how many counselors I saw, no matter how much meds I was on, none of it ever helped. Mm -hmm. So we, after two years in Alberta, we ended up moving way out here to Manitoba. And I remember laughing when we moved out here because I, I swore when I was in like grade five that I would never move east. The east was the enemy. I wasn't going to move there. And I remember when we figured out that we were gonna move out to 
Winnipeg, and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we moved all the way out here. Okay. And we've actually been out here for almost 10 years now. What was the bridge that allowed you in your 20s, which is actually abnormal um, in my experience, but in your 20s to begin to uncover the memories of the dark stuff, the satanic ritual abuse, and all of the things that you had blocked? I, things started have, you know, when you look back and you can see it and things always used to leak through, mm -hmm. through horrible nightmares that no person should have. And you just would think, you know, I've watched too many movies or I constantly dealt with demonic in my bedroom and in my house and honestly constant haunted houses that we lived in. That was one thing that I hadn't written down to think of, but I have insane stories that I do remember of several places that we lived in of that would make the Blair Witch Project look tame. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they were things like my mother getting pushed downstairs and light bulbs bursting and horrible smells and just terrible, terrible things. And that just... It was the normal. The paranormal was my normal. <laughs> it just, again, you put it in that box of either doesn't everybody deal with this or what the what, and I don't have a processor for this. <laughs> and so I guess, yeah, I guess it was so normal that there was nothing abnormal about it. <laughs> um, the memories were coming through my whole life. They just weren't. I didn't know them as memories. I knew them as nightmares and night terrors. I remember sense. one class, um, someone, we showed this little video clip from a history class. Mm -hmm. And they, this one guy spoke in Russian. And before they put the subtitles across, I had translated it. Scary. And. And you put that in the, wait, how do I know that? That can't be right. I must just have an incredible imagination. And I remember going home and looking it up. And it was like, that was accurate. And it was like, what? How, what? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that even that my grandfather, like Grandpa V, was Russian until months ago. Goodness gracious. Yeah, little things like that, right? Like it starts to break down. You just don't know that it's breaking down. And you know, yeah. the thing is, and it was what I love, you're putting language to things right now, Dina, and I don't know that you realize you're doing it because there are people that are going to listen to you talk that are trying to connect the same dots. Night terrors, strange ability to translate languages, uh, experiences of living in haunted houses, houses that have high levels of paranormal, uh, poltergeist, demonic activity. Um, all, you know, check the box elements. And, you know, you're articulating it because it's your reality. 
but it's also opening the door for others. Now, folks, there's a lot to Dina's story. As a matter of fact, we are just now bridging into the discovery phase and the healing journey phase of her life. But we're not going to talk about it this week. Why? Because we're going to talk about it next week. Dina, I want to say thank you for joining me for this week's program. But we're going to have you back next week for the second half of this cliffhanger. What was that discovery and healing journey like at the outset? And so, folks, with that inconvenient move, I bid you farewell. And until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.